thinking. Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. Little technical difficulties as usual for us. Good morning. Thank you for joining us online this morning. Next week, weather permitting, we'll be meeting together outside. I'll be posting further information on loan, online on both our Facebook page as well as on our website. And when it's not so quite so hot outside, we'll be having that long overdue church picnic that we're all looking forward to. So today, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Ephesians, and I'm really excited about it because I love the book of Ephesians. Today's message is going to be a bit different than normal, however. I'm going to give a bit of historical background to the book of Ephesians and their relationship with Paul. And then we're going to spend a lot of time on just the first two verses. And we're going to look at these verses almost word for word. There are some very important foundational words that Paul uses in verses 1 and 2 that I feel we need to have a really good understanding of. Because when we do, we'll have a better understanding of the letter as a whole. But not only that, but these are foundational words for Paul. So these, so an understanding will help you whenever you see these words in any of the letters that Paul has written. I think it's important to, get a bit, to give a bit of background information to the book before we get started. The book of Ephesians is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. The first time that Paul enters Ephesus, it is only for a short time, where in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 21, we read that he entered into the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews. Then they ask him to remain, but he's already been called by God to go to Antioch. So he's unable to remain, and he tells them that he will return if God wills it. He then sets sail for, sets sail for Antioch. So we know that Paul has preached the gospel in Ephesus at this point in time, and that the Jews want him to remain and to continue teaching them more about who Jesus truly is. But he's unable to remain. Paul returns to Ephesus, however, just a short time later in Acts chapter 19, and he finds that there are now disciples' presence within Ephesus. You see, Apollos had come through Ephesus as well just after Paul had left the first time, and he spent there um, time also preaching the gospel and raising up disciples in Jesus' name. Paul this time, however, remains for two years and helps to start the church in Ephesus. So when Paul writes this letter to the church, we should understand that there's a special relationship between Paul and this church. He spent time with them. He's gotten to know them, and he knows them very well. This is the background from which Paul writes when he addresses this letter to the Ephesian church. Like I've said, this is a letter and it carries many characteristics of a letter from this period of time. However, there are also some interesting differences. Letters during this time period didn't begin with an address to whom the letter was sent like letters today are. Rather, letter, letters from this time period would begin by stating from whom the letter was originating. And as such, our letter begins the same in verse 1, where we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, Paul not only states from whom the letter is sent, but he also includes his churchly title, you might say, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This word apostle appears frequently throughout the New Testament and is translated several different ways into English. At its most foundational, it simply means one who is sent by another. 
It can also take on a more official understanding and in those cases would be understood to mean an envoy or an ambassador, not simply someone who is sent on an errand or with a simple message, but rather an envoy or ambassador is sent with an official message and would be a state representative. And so as a state representative, they would be representing the head of that state and would be speaking on behalf of that individual. Their words would effectively be the words of the one whom they are representing. The same is true today. Our ambassadors represent our president and they speak on his behalf in foreign countries. And so Paul is stating that he is essentially an ambassador for Jesus. Now, all of us, I believe, are sent in the same way to the world. This world in relation to Paul is still just a bit different. This word is just a bit different though. The word apostle in the New Testament is used for those who are sent with a special message on behalf of Jesus to the world. But it is also used in reference to those who were appointed by Jesus to form the foundation upon which his church would be built. These are what we would normally refer to as the 12 apostles. We usually represent this when writing with a capital A, right? Not a lowercase a. These individuals were seen differently and they carried greater weight during this time period and their writings have since then as well. Now, there were qualifications that the early church required for anyone to take this special title or office of apostle. You couldn't simply declare yourself to be an apostle. First, he needed to, be have, needed to have seen the risen Jesus. Second, he needed to have been called directly by Jesus. Third, he needed to have possessed the signs of an apostle, apostle, the performing of miracles and wonders. And finally, have received the knowledge of the gospel through direct revelation by Jesus himself. Paul satisfied all of this, and as such, the other apostles accepted him as a capital A apostle. This apostleship would become more than just a title in the early church. This would become a position or an office that was held as well, similar to one who is a pastor and elder within the local church. The apostles spoke on behalf of Jesus for the larger church, not simply the local church like a pastor would. So what about today? Are there apostles? Capital A? I've already hinted at this answer to a degree. We are all in a sense called by Jesus and set apart by him to spread the truth of who he is to this world. Therefore, we are all little a apostles, ambassadors sent with a specific message. The office of apostle, big A apostles, disappeared, I believe, when the last of the apostles died. Why do I say this? It actually has nothing to do with the qualifications of what is required for the office of apostle, but rather for what Jesus saw as the function of the apostle. They were the foundation upon which he would build his church. That foundation was laid 2,000 years ago. No man can now lay a new foundation. We are all simply building upon the foundation that has already been laid by the apostles. And so, as such, I do not believe that there are modern-day capital A apostles. The office or position of apostle is no longer needed and so no longer exists. Those who take the title apostle and the position as someone above and over a group of churches have simply taken the wrong title. 
The problem we face today, however, isn't in the title or in the position. It is in the fact that so many seek the title more than they are called to the position. All that to say that Paul held a special position or office within the early church as one who was called by Jesus to be one among the original apostles and to lay the foundation of the early church. And Paul didn't hold this office because he sought the office, but rather because God the Father sought him. Paul had been called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, it says. The Father had, in essence, before Paul was created, already chosen Paul for apostleship. It was the good desire or will of the Father that caused Jesus to go to Paul on the road to Damascus as Paul was seeking to persecute the church and to proclaim the truth of who Jesus was, that Paul might be saved and then fulfill his call as a capital A apostle. Paul then shifts in his letter from his own introduction to introducing those to whom he is writing this letter. He writes in verse 1 then, it says, To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul calls the believers in Ephesus saints. The Greek word here usually is translated as holy, and a literal translation here might actually be holy ones. But that would be a confusing concept for most today. This term during the time was typically used in reference to objects that were set apart and blessed for religious ceremonial use. As such, what Paul is trying to convey is that believers in Jesus have been blessed by Jesus and set apart from the rest of the world for religious service towards him. It is a simple concept that affects much of what Paul writes throughout the New Testament. So whenever you read Paul, use the words holy or saints in reference to believers, this is what he is saying. You have been set apart from something special in service to your king that will bring him glory and you grace. Paul continues, and he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. The faithful are those whose faith is found in Jesus. It is not about being faithful towards Jesus, right? Our salvation has nothing to do with our faithfulness towards God. In fact, the opposite is more to the truth. Jesus had to die because we were unfaithful towards God, and we sought our greatest desires and love in other idols. And so Jesus had to die so that we might be saved from them. The other idea I believe that this is conveying is a locational concept. The location of our faith is found within Jesus. Paul is not going to really press this idea in the book of Ephesians. However, we will see some of this concept found in chapter 2, what we call our faith in Jesus. I do not believe is our faith at all, in fact. Too much of Scripture says that we are unable to believe due to the effect of our sinful nature. Our nature prior to faith is one to reject Jesus. Our faith is a gift, a gift from Jesus so that we might be saved. The source of our faith is not us. It is Jesus. It is his faith that is given to us so that our eyes might open, our ears might hear, our mind might understand, and our hearts be changed by the grace of God so that we might believe. The next phrase is one of the most important phrases Paul uses throughout his letters. I say this because the idea was very important to Paul. He uses this phrase more than 100 times 
in the 13 letters that he writes. So that means on average, it comes to over eight times per letter. That's on average. However, the book of Ephesians destroys the average. That's why we really need to talk about this phrase. In the book of Ephesians, this, this phrase or its direct phrase or some other form of this phrase, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus, in Christ or in the Lord, is actually used 39 times in this book. So clearly for this letter, the idea that believers are in Christ Jesus is a very important phrase. So what is Paul saying? First, let's discuss what he is not saying. Oftentimes it's important to understand what is not before we can fully understand what is. Paul is not saying that we as believers are placing our faith in Jesus. He is not speaking of Jesus as the object of our faith by using this phrase here. In Greek, that would be a different type of phrase that would be used. This phrase is stating that because we are believers, our place, our location in life is now within Jesus. Our citizenship is found in Christ. Our home is in the heavenlies, even though that is not fully realized as of yet. The simplest way to understand this is to use a parallel concept that our minds already fully understand. For instance, when I go to work, I am in an Amazon warehouse. When you are faithful, you are then in Christ Jesus in the same way. Your life is hid within Him. The spiritual reality of your life is that it is then in Him, right? It is no longer meant to be in this world. The practical ramifications of that are tremendous. And a lot of what Paul intends for us to understand about what it means to be in Christ is going to explain in the next section of chapter 1 in verses 3 through 14. So next week, Paul is going to further define for us what it means that our lives, our citizenship, our humanity is now in Christ. At this point, what we need to understand the most is that what that means for us is that we hold a sort of dual citizenship as though as those who are citizens in this world do the very nature of our physical presence within this world. But we are now citizens of heaven as our lives are now found within Christ Jesus. And that means that we are oftentimes going to come up against competing ideas, concepts, agendas. And when that happens, we must always choose the right side. This is for the Christian the greatest struggle we will face until Christ returns. God created us for this world, but not for the fallen nature of this world. And so we have a responsibility towards this world as God created it, as he intended it originally. But we must continually fight against that which is fallen and broken all around us. It can be, at times, difficult to tell the differences. And at times, more often than not, our sin draws us towards that which is fallen, and we embrace that fallenness rather than that which is in Christ, that which is holy. That is the cross. That is the crossroads of so many of these concepts Paul puts in the first two verses where they meet. Are we living our lives in the world or in Christ Jesus? It can be difficult at times to tell the difference and at others, difficult to choose. We are Jesus' saints, set apart to serve him. And so we must strive always to choose to live our lives in Christ Jesus while walking out our lives within this world. Okay, that was just verse one. And the hard part was trimming that down 
so as not to overwhelm many of us, I could probably talk for several hours on simply what it means to be the faithful in Christ Jesus. Thankfully, Paul is going to spend the rest of the book discussing much of that idea. So, we'll follow Paul's lead and not Gary's desires today. Verse 2 reads, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the words grace, the word grace, often throughout his letters. And in this small word, he implies a huge idea. Nearly two-thirds of the usage of the word grace occur in Paul's writings. 100 out of 150 times. But before we get there, we're going to start small and we're going to build to this larger idea of this word. At its core, the Greek word for grace is usually defined as unmerited favor. So you are shown someone's favor that you did not deserve. For instance, if you're pulled over for speeding and the police officer chooses to not give you the ticket, that is gracious of the officer. You have been shown grace in that you deserved the ticket, but the offer extended favor towards you, even though you technically did not deserve that favor. Of course, grace in the scripture gets a bit amped up. Paul extends this comment concept significantly as he describes it throughout his letters. Grace becomes so much more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. For Paul, it would be more like the officer forgave your transgression and then paid you for your time. That's like next-level grace, right? For Paul, when you read grace, here is what you should hear. You and I have sinned, and in our sin, we, do any, we are unable to do anything to bring glory to God. And there is a price to be paid for sin. That price is death. Our sin has brought the death penalty. But God, the gracious gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ. God, in his infinite love towards us, while we were yet sinners, led his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. And now if we confess to the truth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we will be saved. For Paul, the word grace at its core is what the church calls the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the complete story of the cross. This is the ultimate measure of grace ever shown. Jesus' life is the very definition of the word grace. And the ultimate measure that flows from the grace of God in Christ Jesus is peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where there was enmity and strife and struggle through the work of Jesus on the cross, there is peace between us and our Creator. There is peace between us and our loving Father who is in heaven. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God the Father, because of his gracious gift of his Son, has removed the condemnation that was there because of our sin. We have been set free from the power of sin in our lives so that we might live lives set apart as saints in service to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And because of God's infinite, unfathomable, unending grace, we should be convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in, G in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. God's peace knows no limits. God's peace knows no end. That is what comes from God's grace towards us, his children. Because that is what he chose for us, his children, from the moment he conceived of our creation. And this peace extends beyond just our relationship with God. Paul is going to show in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 how it brings all of mankind together as one in Christ Jesus in the church. This is the message and the word our world so desperately needs to hear right now. And all of it, every bit of what we are going to see in the rest of the book of Ephesians is true only because of grace. And all of what we are going to find in this amazing book of Ephesians is all and only found in Christ Jesus. So this week, as we go about our lives in this world, remember, remember where your true citizenship lies. Your life as a believer in Jesus is now found in Christ Jesus alone. You have a heavenly citizenship. Walk in that truth. We need to remind ourselves of the cross daily. It should be our first and our last thoughts every day. Then we will walk daily in the grace of God. And you know what will flow from our lives in Christ Jesus into this crazy, mixed-up, fallen world? The peace of God. And our world right now desperately needs ambassadors who have been sent with a message of peace. You are that ambassador. Stand strong. Stand firm. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that you bring the peace of God that transcends all understanding to this pain-filled world. You have the power by words to bring healing to the broken. Speak God's grace. Be God's gracious ambassador to this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, today we, become, we come before you and we ask that you touch our lives, that we might know the truth of your word, that we might see clearly the path you have for each of us as your ambassadors of the grace that comes from the cross. Father, right now, remind us of the call that we each have to be your ambassador. Remind us moment by moment as we stand before those who need to hear your message of peace. Jesus, keep before us daily the cross, but help us to see heaven on the other side. Help us to remember that our true and ultimate citizenship lies in you and with you and for you. Help us to walk worthy of that citizenship that we might represent you, our King, well before this world. Holy Spirit, empower us today and every day that we might stand against the powers of this world that will seek to stop us from fulfilling our call as ambassadors of Jesus. Holy Spirit, remove the doubt, the fear, and any other barrier we might carry that gets in the way of our bringing glory to our King, our Lord, and our Savior, our Christ, our Messiah, our Jesus. Amen. And now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the de dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And may the grace of God be with all of those who unceasingly love our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, guys, I'm going to hang out and stick around. 
If you have any questions, concerns, anything about the text, the book of Ephesians as it's coming up, you can message me through the comments um, and I'll see them. Or you can send a text message, one more Gabe, to the number right there below and we'll be good to go. All right, guys. Thanks. We're going to hang out for just a little bit. Amber, I don't know if my parents will be there. I think so. I haven't heard from them, but I'm almost positive they'll be there. If you guys are online and available, you can either text me to let me know if you'll be there or comment in the messages because we're dying to know. And we got crickets. Maybe they slept in today. That would be funny. The pastor's parents didn't show up at church. Of course, they just cast it to their TV. So they don't have a means of commenting. So right now my mom is probably freaking out like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're saying that. Still nothing from them. Amber, as soon as I know, I'll let you know. I would expect, I would be shot. Look, okay, I just got a message. My, yikes. My mom just said, we're there. So next Sunday, they'll be there. It'll probably be early. We're going to set a time. I'll put all that out there uh, this week at some point in time. We're going to do it early because the later we get on the day, the warmer it becomes. And it's hot right now outside. And I left Texas. I don't like the hot anymore. I'm a northerner. Oh, I can't say that. No, I'm still a southern boy. All right. Any more questions, concerns, comments? I sound like I work at Amazon. I can't stop that phrase. All right, guys, I pray that the Lord bless you, that he keep you, and he cause his face to shine upon you. Be blessed and have a wonderful weekend. Amen.